Who are you? What are you? That's where we're going today. Because identity is authority. And authority is the question that everyone in Jerusalem is asking with Jesus. Who gave you the right to do this? They've been saying. How dare you heal a man on the Sabbath? They've been saying. Where did you come from? Is it a demon? They've been saying. They don't know who he is, and so they don't understand his authority. But who he is, is his authority, and he comes with the power to do the unexpected, to do what you could not see. He's not going to hide. He's not going to stop. He's going to get crucified. That's his game plan. It doesn't make any sense to our flesh. But it's who he is. He would rather get crucified than lose you. Let that sink in before we start. Because I know the readings were hard readings. They're judgment kind of readings. And and the text is going to get a little judgment tea here for a moment. So let it sink in that the judgment happened at the cross for you. That you're his now. That everything else that's been going on around this is him trying to say to you, because you are mine, would you believe it? I have given you my authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and he washes your mind with it. So that his words become your words, and when you speak his words, it's not just you speaking. God's now speaking inside of you. We just did it all together when we confessed the creed. That's the Holy Spirit in our midst. If you drifted off in your mind, I get it. That happens sometimes. Let's try harder. Next time, doesn't matter. You're still part of the body. You're in the ship. You're on the ark. The rain is coming, but Jesus has you. Take and eat this morning. It's going to be your destiny forever. Let that be with you then here, that this is about Jesus authorizing you to trust him. Everything is about Jesus authorizing you to trust him and say so. In the face of a world that's going to scream at you, you're wrong. Now, our text this morning is officially Mark chapter 12, 28 to 37. Excuse me. Chapter 12, 28 to 13, 37. It's big. Mark caught up to us. I I can't do it all today for you. So we're going to only do part of it. Uh, In the late service, though, we're going to go line by line through all of it. It'll be a whirlwind. And I do want you all to know that the other sermon is always different at St. Paul. And it's always available on our website, uh, sp815.org. Or you can find my name on YouTube pretty easily. And you can always get that secondary sermon. So if you had a text ever and you're like, oh, I would have liked more of this. Or I wonder why he didn't touch on that. uh, There's a good chance in the other sermon I do. And you can always go and follow up and, and further your catechesis, your discipleship at home. Yeah, maybe listen it together and listen to it together and talk about it, that kind of thing. Um, all of that said, then, uh, for today, we're going to just look at two pieces of this big text that is leading us right up to the night in which Jesus is going to be betrayed. We're going to look at the end of his talk about the fig tree, the temple, the old covenant, and the end of the world, all in one big package. And then we're going to zoom back and we're going to look at one of the other questions that he's asked while teaching in the temple 
uh, not so much as a trick. This is, he's, everyone's tried to trick him already, but there's a question that is asked that's in good heart and it gets a really good answer. So we're going to close today, today with that. So where we're going to start then is with Mark chapter 13, verse 28. This is on page 850 of your pew Bible. And it's where this fig tree idea comes back. And if you remember the, the story sandwich event that Jesus tends to do, he, or Mark tends to do, he tells a story, he breaks it, he tells another story, he breaks it, he puts another story in the middle, he comes back to the second story, finishes it, he comes back to the first story, finishes it, and then that one ties often into the next sandwich, as it were. He's been making this massive subway foot long, maybe six foot long since the triumphal entry. I mean, it's just this huge sandwich because it's all about this fig tree. So you can go all the way back to the fig tree and you can start reading in from that story and you can read backwards from where we are now and you can see there's there's connections and lines tying everything together. We're not going to have time for all those nice layers of the sandwich. Again, the fig tree is what I want you to remember. This is the bread on the outside a little bit, right? And, and this fig tree is the idea that when God creates something, he does it so it produces more good things. Like any good God ever does is so there'll be more good. God isn't like, I'm keeping the good and only I get to do it. He's like, no, I'm going to do good and it's going to like spill over. It's going to overflow into more good. And so a tree in creation is just a good example of this. God's like, here's a seed, throws it out there. Look what happens. Boof, beautiful thing. Birds of the air can nest in it. Here's this fruit. People can eat it. The fruit drops more trees. It's more good. But when he goes to this fig tree on the way to Jerusalem, which itself also is not just an image of God and goodness, but the fig tree, particularly an image of Israel. And he finds that it's got leaves aplenty and not a single piece of fruit on it. He says, this is the actual problem with mankind. And if I am just, I will curse you and you will wither to rot. And the proof in the pudding is here I am amongst the people I chose out of mankind to make them special so that they would believe in me and look what they're doing. They don't even recognize who I am. And that, again, that story now comes to completion here in multiple ways. The disciples are asking a question about the actual temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, yes, with the end of the Old Covenant, which will begin with the New Testament in his blood, the meal that we eat now. With the end of the Old Covenant, the temple is no longer any good to God. It's, in fact, an idol factory. And I'm going to tear it down, Jesus says. And he'll do that in 70 A.D. But to the disciples, this idea cannot be separated from the end of the planet Earth and all of the universe. They see the destruction of the temple and the end of the universe as the exact same thing. They can't separate it. And so Jesus kind of does in his answer that we're going to look at. He separates it, uh, but then he doesn't either. He kind of says, oh yeah, it's, it, what's happening here in this temple is just a little picture of what's happening to the entire universe. And it's really not going to be any different in end. Just as the temple is going to be destroyed stone by stone with great destruction, so also uh, hellfire, brimstone, judgment day, wrath of God, it's all coming on the last day to those who do not get authorized to enter paradise. Where, where, what is your identification? Papers, please. Right? Do you have a, an answer for St. Peter? Or do you just know that you can say, oh, no, no, this one was born there. 
That's my authorization. This one was born there. When were you born there? When I received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Fisk, you received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You better believe I'm baptized. So on the last day, I walk in as a citizen, right? But the world is not going to have that happen. And the story of the end of the world is a giant picture of that. And then there's one more level. We did real Jerusalem in history. We did end of the world eschatology. Now there's the fact of your own personal heart, mind, and soul. Because remember that Jesus is pretty consistently saying, yeah, the building's not the temple. Tear it down. I'll rebuild it in three days. How are you going to do that? There's a lot of stone. That's not what I meant. The building's not the temple. The body is the temple. So when I ask you, who are you? And I ask you, what are you? What I want you to have after everything today is that, well, I'm a tree planted by Jesus, and that means I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit in my baptism. I'm going to say that again. You are a planting of Jesus as a temple of the Holy Spirit for his inhabitation. Your baptism is the anointing that promises you this. So everything else is just built on top of that thing that can never pass away even though heaven and earth are going to pass away. And that's kind of the thing here. Verse 28, page 850, Mark 13. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. This is throwing back already. Remember, there was no fruit, but as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So what he's saying here is that knowing that there is danger coming to your city, because he's talking about Jerusalem specifically, All the way leading up to this, knowing that there is danger coming to your city is about as difficult as knowing that spring is coming because of the trees. So if you can tell that spring is coming because of the trees, well, then you can understand when evil men get control and do things that are so wicked that God's not going to let it last for very long. You can figure that out yourself, he says. So also, verse 29, when you see these things taking place, and remember, he's talking to the 11 apostles themselves. When you see these things taking place in Jerusalem, you know that he is near. That's the wrath of God coming. And notice, at the very gates. It's the gates of the temple that started this whole conversation. So he's very much talking about the end of Jerusalem, but it's going to lean toward what about our city? What about our planet, right? Well, remember, though, this is a specific thing. Verse 30, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It's pretty important intellectual verse there. Everything he says about what's going to happen takes place in their lifetime. So this text can never be only about the end of the world. It always has to also be about that time. Otherwise, Jesus is wrong in this statement. And believe me, I've, I've sat down at a, at a lunch with a guy who bought me lunch to tell me that Jesus was wrong here. And that's why he's not a Christian anymore. And I, I tried to explain to him, no, no, he, no, the temple was torn down. He said, no, 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 he, that's what he meant. So get this in your hopper a little bit. Now, all of this talk about the end of the world already happened once in Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus' words will never pass away. That's when you can take to the bank everywhere you go. And of course, what's the word he's been saying that nobody understands so far? I'm going to die. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to rise from the dead. No one seems to be getting that yet. But then, verse 32, concerning that day, now he wants to talk about the end of the world. Right there. Concerning the end of the world, judgment day, or that hour when it's about to happen, right? No one knows. 
not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, only, only the Father. So why all the stuff you see on TV about blood moons and so many days until Armageddon and this and that and left behind and blah, blah, blah. They all just ignore these verses that tell us we're not going to know. You can't pin the tail on the Antichrist. You can't know who's going to be the next person to spiritually destroy the world. You can see, again, uh, tyrannical governments when they're about to destroy a city. That's obvious, but, but that's a little different than uh, who is the last person to tell the last great lie before Jesus comes back. You know, there's going to be many liars. They're going to get great and they're going to get torn down. That's what we know. And none of that is a sign that we're almost there. No, he's not according to this. No one knows, he says. But then why is that? Well, what comes out of that? I think if, if you think you know, you lose what comes next. When he says, be on guard, keep awake. Because the whole reason to try to keep awake, whatever that means, is that you don't know when the last day will be. But here, let me just put that in perspective for a moment. Okay, so, so I've been given... Uh, just suddenly, and this is, I'm making this up as I go, I'm, I've just been given a million dollars. And the first thing my heart's going to do is say, how can I make that last as long as possible? How can I keep it so that I actually never have less than a million dollars? That's the first thing my heart's going to do. But the thing is, what might be a bit more Christian is to think this thought first. You know, today could be the last day there ever is. Wonder what good I could do as quickly as possible with a million dollars. Do you see the difference in the thinking? The way you think. It's not about what, it's it's the way. Right? Of course, of course you can invest in a trust fund that does much good. That's fine. It's about, about what do you believe the future is going to bring? And do you believe that there might not be any more future after tomorrow? Because the end of the world will be, which will be, a, again, a great future, a huge and eternal future, but not the one that we're always planning for here. And so the, the be on guard, keep awake is don't forget, it's all burning pretty soon. Like every piece of it. And if the rust on the bottom of your vehicles in Rockford doesn't teach you that, right, what will? It's all going to go down. And so our life then, verse 34, is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. Now remember, he's also talking about the Pharisees, Sadducees, all that, you know, they're, and they're bad servants. But, but who are we now, disciples of Jesus Christ? Who are we? Who are you? Right? You're, you're a servant of Jesus. That's what, exactly what you are. You're his bought slave at market again. Only he's such a good master, he calls his slaves sons and by name gives them inheritances. It's kind of an amazing thing, yes? Uh, but he still puts us there in the house to be a certain kind of people in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. He says, verse 35, therefore stay awake, he says, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he suddenly come and find you asleep. So the story is pretty clear. You just don't know when the guy's coming back. What you take from it is the issue. And he says it again to make sure there's no mistake. I've talked about the temple. I've talked about the apostles. I've said this and that to just you all right here. But what I say next, verse 37, I say to everybody. Jesus says, stay awake. Stay awake. Now, that's, that's what you call a command. Not the first commandment, it's not the seventh commandment, it's not the greatest commandment, but it's a command. 
And what I would also like for you to have today on the foundation of that anointing and baptism that we talked about earlier that's so undeniably forever and true, I would love to have you be able to hear a command from Jesus without using it to beat yourself up. Well, I don't know if I'll do it good enough. Well, I know my heart doesn't really do this. These things are all true, probably. <laughs> but that's not why he said it. He didn't say stay awake. So you'd like come to church and say, I know the second use of the law tells me that I don't stay awake enough. So I this week will apologize for staying awake because that was the law in the sermon last week. That's not why he said it. He said it because he actually wants you to stay awake and he's authorized you to do so. Because the thing about a commandment specifically is it's not just some guy saying to some guy, do this. It's someone who has authority saying to someone under him, do this with my authority. So you have Jesus' authority to believe that you will never forget about him until the day he comes back. He's authorized you to believe that you will never forget about him until the day he comes back. And you're like, but but what if I do? Exactly. He's authorized you to believe you won't. That's his power, not yours. He hasn't told you you'll never doubt. He's told you that when you do doubt, you're allowed to tell yourself that's you doubting, not him. And he's in charge. And so you're actually not authorized to doubt. All your doubts are, in fact, just wasted time. Because they're not enough to separate you from the love of Christ. That's his promise. That's your authorization again here. Stay awake. Remember this. I want to take that same idea. That the command is given not to condemn you, but to build you, to push you, to urge you. With all the vitality of the truth that you've been given in the resurrection. And so let's go back now and look at that other part of this text that, that we're going to emphasize this morning. Uh, this starts on page 848 of your pew Bible in verse 28 of chapter 12. Chapter 12, 28, Mark 8, 48 in your pew Bible. And in the context here again, Jesus has been questioned three times by all of his enemies. And in each case, it's an extension of their refusing to believe he's authorized to even teach there, let alone overturn money changer tables and things like that. Uh, so all of that has happened. He's told the parable of the keystone which is the, the idea, the prophecy, that this is exactly what's going to happen, that the leaders of Israel are going to reject the one who is their God when he comes. He tells that story. And then they get into this debate back and forth. They try to test him and trick him by questions about things that everybody cares about and can get angry about very quickly, um, uh, death, taxes, and uh, marriage. Uh, those things can, can bring up some emotions very fast. That's what's happened up to this point. And then, Verse 28, I'm going to read all the way through the section we're going to look at here. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. 
You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So, so many good things in there from, do you remember, uh, good is better than great in the gospel of Mark. And the question, at least in English, is what's the, what's the greatest commandment? So, so you got something in there. Um, but the most enticing piece of all of this to me uh, is that Jesus quotes Moses in answer to a question following a ton of tricks. They're trying to catch him in his words the whole way. They're trying to get him to misquote Moses in front of everybody. And here in this question, he quotes Moses exactly accurately, except for that he adds a word. He adds a word. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, you'll see that it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord Jesus, he is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's all it says. And, and for us Christians and for us Lutherans, we probably are, are missing the emphasis in that moment that when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, this is like a Sunday school question for a Jewish person. Like in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus, right? Okay, well, in Sunday school at Judaism, the answer is always the great Shema. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That is the beginning of all of their theology. And, and Jesus doesn't disagree. <laughs> and, and in fact, he, he points it out, but this, this Shema, that's the word here in, in uh, Hebrew. Uh, Hear, O Israel, God exists and is one. That's a huge moment. I'm gonna come back to that too. Okay. But then following that, Moses says, love the Lord your God with all, I said it a moment ago, heart and soul and strength. Now here's Jesus standing in the front of this huge crowd, some of whom really want to kill him and trick him up in his words. And he says the exact same thing. He just inserts an extra word. And it's the word uh, uh, which is translated as mind, um, which is fine. But means like through, like I'm going through a hole. And then that's more like the word your brain, right? So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all the stuff that goes through your brain. And with all your strength, he says, your vitality. And then this scribe in the front of everybody agrees. Jesus just added to Moses and the scribe's like, you are right. Not only that, the Greek's even more clear. He says, good teacher. That's what comes out of his mouth. Good teacher. Now, you do understand the law. Now, let's look at that bit of the text here, um, uh, which is verse 32. You have truly said that he is one. There's one God. Got to come back to that still. And there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, same word. And with all the understanding, different word. And with all the strength, same word, but he left out soul. 
unless you're in the King James, and then there's a debate about which text is authentic. But uh, it, it seems he may have left out soul, but he, he zeroed in on that noia through the brain word, and he gave us a different word for it, which means to put together. It's actually the word for when two uh, uh, rivers come and meet at a head and then join us to one. So he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all the rivers joining in your head. You're right, Jesus. That is the great command. Now, I find that to be the most fascinating piece of the entire text. And there's, there's so much more here. But that Jesus comes and says to us, look, your faith is about a couple of very key things. One of them is your trust. And that's your heart. Your heart is where you learn to trust. One of them is your strength. That's, that's your will. That's your energy. That's your power. That's what you're going to do. Uh, and then there's the, your soul. Did you know you have one? What is your soul after all? Is it your spirit or is it something different? Well, God says you got one. Let me tell you, for you, it's your inner life and your new man in Christ. Uh, but then this soul, this inner life, this spirit within you, it's separate from and different than this other piece that I think Christians have just set down beside the wayside for too, while, too long. And that, that's your brain. Christianity is not complicated. I know Lutherans can make it sound complicated. I'm sure I make it sound complicated. It's not complicated. It's very straightforward. Do you intend to drink the blood of Jesus with us today? Pretty straightforward there, right? It's not complicated. So grabbing onto Jesus' command, his authorization of you to believe that it's good to love God not with like a romantic love, but by pursuing him with the zest of your spirit, the intellect of your mind, and then understanding that that's what a heart and soul reality is. This is the greatest thing there is to do in the entire world, the rest of your life forever. Try it. Lutherans come along and they're like, but the second use of the law says I can't do that. And this is where I just, I just want you to, to see, yeah, you're right. You're going to be condemned if you judge yourself by the, this commandment on the last day. You're not going to make it. If, if your righteousness in Christ rests on how well you love God with all your heart, it's not very righteous. But let's stop thinking that we're trying to earn anything and start believing we're just trying to do good because it's good for everybody else. And so, yeah, you're authorized to love God with all your heart in Jesus. You can. Don't judge it. Don't measure it. Don't try to get a hold of it. Just trust it. It's true. I mean, do you go out and hate God with all your heart every day? I don't think so. Okay, well, then you're authorized to love him. You're authorized to use your strength for his good. And where I really want you to go, you know, write it down on a note. I'm authorized to think about God in ways that make me feel better. In ways that make me confident. In ways that give me peace and strength. I'm, I am authorized to remember, here it is, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit that claims you as a pilgrim, sojourner, royal priest, prophet, and king in this present age, heading toward an inheritance that is downright unbelievable, but nonetheless true and proven in the wounds of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. I command you that. <laughs> what a wonderful commandment this is. I'm not denying law and gospel. I don't think we should. It's a neat and glorious light. I just don't want it to steal from us that the law is good. And that this greatest command isn't the greatest command. It's the goodest command. 
It's a super good prime alpha number one thing to do. And the second, which Jesus answers the question, nobody asks, what does this mean? Love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. It means love your neighbor. Because you can't love God who you haven't seen if you hate your neighbor who you have seen. That's how the apostles explain it later. And in this, I've only got one short thing to say to you this morning about your neighbor. And that is that we've bought a lie called the global village in which we kind of think that everyone on the planet is a neighbor. We just kind of act that way. And it's just not true. Even when you're at the grocery store and you're with all those people, you're kind of in a neighbor role at that moment. But those people aren't your neighbors either. And I'm not saying don't love them. I'm not saying that the second commandment is don't love people who are not your neighbors. The commandment is love your neighbors. And those are the people that live next door to you. It's what they are. How, how is your relationship with your neighbors? An interesting thought for this Lent, yes? Nothing to go home and beat yourself up over. Let's just start with, again, remember, you are authorized now to believe you can love God because of Jesus. And so love what Jesus has done and seek it with all your mind and with all your soul. And then from there, if you'd like to improve something, stop nitpicking all the stuff on the internet and find out what your neighbor actually needs yesterday. Maybe it's just a smile. Maybe it's for you to stay away. Okay, well, then you stay away. But that's just it. Think in those local terms. And then see, of course, that who else is your neighbor? Even greater than in your neighborhood? Where's your real lot, your real inheritance? Where are all the other temples with the Holy Spirit inside of them? No, they're, they're right here, right now. So the near one in the pew is also who God would have you, you know, love more than yourself. And we could spend lots of time about how impossible that is. But how about we instead focus on how good that idea is? Let's try it. I know that when I get to judgment day and God says, Jonathan, why should I let you to heaven? I'm, gonna say, I'm not going to say. Because I love my neighbor as myself. I'm just, I'm not going to ever say that. I don't expect to have to answer a question. I don't expect there to be a test. I expect to be standing there and he's going to go, sheep. And if the devil says, why? Again, he's going to say, well, this one was born there. Don't you see the baptismal waters glistening and anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him? That he is one with my body, right? Expect that. And then see that in this life, what's good? Well, it's good to watch for the end of it. And in the meantime, love God. It, it makes for good days. Uh, and then it does make for neighbors that find you lovable since you're so busy trying to love them. Yes? In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer.